Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for this class and the opportunity that we have to discuss things and to explore what your word says about your operation in the world, how you transform fallen sinners into your children who are redeemed and being conformed to the image of Jesus. We pray this morning that you would help us think through some of the issues of what your word says about our nature uh, from Adam and (coughs) the um, amazing grace that you show us to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. We pray for these things to be not just um, informational, factual head knowledge, but that they would warm our hearts and uh, draw us ever closer to the beauties and the excellencies of Christ. And we pray all these things in His name this morning. Amen. We are in phase two of total depravity. We've been going through um, the... Uh, a brief 10,000-foot overview of the five points of Calvinism. And I thought it would be good to positively state the case for each of the points and then to, to um, on each point, take an, another time to wrestle with some of the objections to, uh, to each point. And so this, this week, and I appreciate uh, Philip taking the class uh, last week. Um, I hear it was, uh, was interesting. Um, any recording made of that by No? Okay. Well, so there's no evidence of everything that you told me that you said last night. Okay. Uh, so so uh, we, we, have, uh, we have the second uh, lesson today on total depravity. And I wanted to go through the common objections to that. We, 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 first of all, I've, I've actually done a handout. Uh, and at the top of the handout, you'll see a definition that we're working with. Uh, when we use the term total depravity or total inability, we mean mainly that the very nature of man has been so affected by original sin that every part of his being is affected by evil. In other words, there's not a single part of man that has not been fatally infected by sin. Uh, So critics of Calvinism, and I don't shy away from wearing that historic label. I mean, it's unfortunate that Calvin has been... uh, Credited with it, I mean, it's it's a little unfair to the Apostle Paul that he that he got uh, credited with it, or Augustine or Luther. But there's a there's a host of guys that came before Calvin that that taught these things. Um, critics of Calvinism rightly point uh, what they call the dour understanding of human nature. Um, it, it's they they credit total depravity, and I think rightly so, with kind of the foundational. Um, linchpin of the whole system, if you want to call it a system. Because if man is able to save himself, then there's really irresistible grace falls, right? Because there's no, we can do it ourselves. We don't need grace. If man can save himself, unconditional election really falls because, I mean, God can see who's going to choose him by their awesomely awesome free will. I mean, so everything kind of depends on on what is the state of man from the beginning. And that's really uh, where, their, where their main objections to this doctrine come from. 
if man were able in and of himself to cooperate with the commands of God, then some would do that before the time of Christ and him sending the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, we'd have evidence of that. So, um, I, I'm, I've, in my head, I think of this as kind of a spiritual fossil record. You know, you have in Adam all die. You have those redeemed being confirm, uh, conformed to the image of Jesus. Do you have a fossil record of a guy who is able to change himself? You would not find it in the sediment of the history of time. Pelagius argued that there were, but is the, the evidence just isn't there. So it doesn't stop the objections, though, to this doctrine. Um, and I, and I want to e examine those today. I have a handout, and if, if you're listening to this on a recording, I'll be emailing this out through CCB later. Because, you know, I, I really want to encourage apathy and attendance, and so we're going to send the handout <laughs> later. Um, all right, so we're going to do objection number one. If God commands it, man can do it. If God commands it, man can do it. What, uh, in order for man to be uh, responsible for sin, and that's really the, seems to be the, the thing that gets everybody's goat, is man responsible for his own sin if he, doesn't, if he isn't able to freely choose to obey God. In order for man to be responsible for sin, he must be able to respond in obedience. Um, oughtness, what man ought to do, implies ability, what man can do. That's the objection. Uh, man is responsible, therefore he is morally able to obey God. And there's a fairness issue to that objection, right? I mean, it seems that it wouldn't be fair to be trapped God creating us to be trapped in sin where we cannot freely choose Him. Um, man may have a bent towards sin, but he still has the power to change. And some non-Calvinists say that, that man himself is unable, but add that God has given sufficient grace to bring him back to that morally neutral point. That's, that's uh, the ability that God gives for all men to overcome their natural inability if you're going to if you're going to hold hold to that. So, when you see commands like you shall not covet your neighbor's house, that's an ought to, right? I mean, that's a man should do this. Um the statements of Jesus which, you know, keep us up late at night if you really start thinking this through, uh, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Just dwell on that for a while. Um, command implies ought. If Jesus says you've got to be perfect as God is perfect, well, we should, we should have the ability to do that at some point, whether aided by grace or not, depending on what spectrum you know, the, the objector holds to. Uh, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed. Therefore, we have the ability to not be conformed. Uh, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, when Peter's talking to Christians there, we'll get to that at some point. I, I think that there is an ability, that there's a freeing of the will, the recreation of the heart, that you can be holy before God as a Christian. But 
these are commands that were given to people. He's quoting commands that were given in Leviticus. We studied that um, to those who were unregenerate, who were unsaved. And again, the objector says they ought to do it. Therefore, they are able to do it. All men are commanded not to covet. Therefore, all men have the ability not to covet. So what's the response of uh, the Calvinist? It's a faulty assumption. Um, ought does not imply ability. Um, John Gill uh, said this, The law only shows what a man ought to do, not what he can do. And I think that's a fair statement of the Calvinist response. Uh, Francis Churitan said, God's commands are not the measure of strength, but a rule of duty. They do not teach what we are now able, but what we are bound to do, what we ought to do, and what we could formally do, in other words, before the fall. And from how great a height of righteousness we have fallen by Adam's fall. So God, thanks, in revealing His law, instructs our duty toward God. We're image bearers. We ought to reflect His image. We were created to reflect His image. And, and the law shows us what the image looks like. It tells man that he ought to reflect God's image, that he ought to obey. And then it further, the Reformed guy, me and others, will argue that it shows him what he can't do. I ought to reflect God's image, but I don't have the ability to do it in the fallen state. When the human heart meets the law of God, man is shown to be the wretched sinner that he is. It's a, it's a mirror, who we are in the, in the face of a holy God. He has the capacity, the natural ability. In other words, <clears throat> it says don't steal. I can control my hands in the, in the quickie mart and, and not steal, right? Uh, it says uh, don't lust, don't commit adultery. I can control my eyes and look down at the sand, you know, at the beach, whatever. I have the natural ability to do it. The problem is the moral ability to do it. I don't want to. In, in a fallen state, I don't have the moral ability. My heart is always drawn. I love sin, therefore I do sin. I do what I most love to do at every moment. And what a fallen heart always wants to do is sin. Um, he has the capacity, the natural ability to obey, but he has no moral ability, the want to obey. Therefore, the unregenerate man will never exert his will to obey God unless God does something in his heart. That's a desperate state. Because you're responsible for what you do, right? You're responsible for your actions. And it can only be remedied by the faith that God provides. Um, so what is the law then? What are these oughts? Well, what does Paul tell us? The law is what? A schoolmaster. A schoolmaster. A tutor, the NASB says. Um, the ESV says guardian. Eh. But, you know, I think tutor is the better, the better uh, translation there. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. I need a Savior because I can't do what I ought to do. Ought doesn't imply ability. The oughts display my inability and my need for Jesus. It's a tutor to get me to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24. All right, that's objection one. Any questions on that? Any statements on that?
think the before Adam and Eve's fall, would you say the if God commands it, man could do it? Obviously, well, go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, the Augustine has a very interesting, I think, fair um, grid on this. There's uh, there's the ability. Uh, to not sin, and there's the ability to obey at the same time. Ability, um, and that's kind of this. That's if anybody was truly in a neutral state, if you want to call it that, it would be Adam and Eve. They they were the test was all things being equal. You had the ability. They were created good but not perfect is the idea, and so if you you have the ability not to sin and you have the ability to obey, what are you going to do? Here's the test. And once they fall, then it becomes you have the ability to sin, but you don't have the ability, the moral ability to obey. That's the fall. Um, and then he goes through some other permutations of that. But, but yes, so they, I think they were created in a, in a state where they could choose to obey or they could choose to sin. So from that standpoint, um, yes. Does that answer the you yeah, have more to that. That, that grid is important because it's, it separates issues. Yeah. And while they could have chosen to obey, they didn't. Right. Right. And they were the last ones that could. Well, yeah. Well. Well, and and it comes God's, to that too. God's it comes. Right. Counsel, That's true. Know. And we get in we get into the sovereignty, human responsibility mystery again. That Spurgeon says travels in parallel lines and meets behind the throne of grace. So there you go. Um, That's well said. But uh, and I stick with Spurgeon on that one. But but it is it, that is that is a that is an issue that not just Calvinists have to deal with. I mean everybody has to deal with that issue. We don't know. We're not told the 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 whole counsel of God on that issue. But we do know that they had the ability to obey because apparently they did for a while, and they had the ability to sin because obviously they did. So, what we know from scriptural testimony from that point forward, the whole race bore the sin of Adam and is plunged into um, ability, uh, uh, inability to obey. All right, so the, the second objection. Any, any other question on that? Yeah. I, I can't think of where it's at. Or what, isn't there a scripture where... Paul says something to the fact that man should. Oh, I don't even know what I'm saying. He says something about is it man really responsible if he can't do what he's ought to? Oh, Romans, Romans. You talking about Romans seven? I can't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Who can deliver me that one? Or does he say? Who, how can he judge us for who can resist his will? That one? Yes. That's Romans 9, I think. Um, that's an objection to Paul's doctrine of election. If God is sovereign over everything, and he, and he has determined and decreed that Adam would fall and that you know, we, were, we would be plunged into sin, who can resist his will and that? Why are we responsible for what we do? To which um, he gives a very comprehensive explanation to all of that by saying, 
who are you, old man, to talk back to God? <laughs> so again, that, again, it comes into that whole mystery idea that there are some things that God, and, and I had a conversation with a lady recently about this, that there are some things that, that God, because He's God, just keeps close to the vest, right? I'm creature, He's creator. There's some, there's some issues where we just have to, you know, kind of punt. But that's a punt for everybody. Uh, it's a punt for those who, who cling to free will. Because if God is sovereign, what, what does that mean? What, how, how do you explain uh, those things as well? So, all right, objection number two. Total depravity, if true, encourages the sinner to keep sinning. If we're saying that man doesn't have the ability to obey... Sin all the more. It's not your fault. You're born this way. That's right. Sin all the more. And if a sinner can't help sinning, why should he be punished? It's not fair, right? So the objector will say, imagine telling that to an unbeliever that he cannot help but sin. Certainly he would use that as an excuse to sin more. And some guys even say the Calvinist loves this doctrine because it excuses his own sin. It, it allows him to sin with, well, you know, this is where I am, I'm saved, but I, I, this is the body of death I'm trapped in. Let's just sin all the more. So if the sinner cannot help sinning, why should he be punished? Would we punish a man who was forced to pull the trigger on a gun by someone else? This doctrine hurts the reputation of God by turning divine justice into cruelty. God mocking us for our inability and judging us for our inability and how cruel that makes God. Uh, some have likened it to tying the legs of a horse and whipping it for not running on command or like taunting a cripple. So the people get a little emotional with this one. Um, it's not fair. So what's the response to it's not fair? <clears throat> Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? I guess is the response. Unbelieving man does choose what he most loves to do at every moment. He just loves his sin more than Christ. Uh, the Bible does teach that man has a choice and that he acts freely in the exercise of that choice. The issue concerns whether a person controlled by the sinful nature will ever make the proper choice. That's really what it comes down to. Um, it's the lion starving in the Sahara sitting under a fruit tree. I mean, it's a great analogy. It does. I'm quoting, but I'm not going to cite it. Um, it, is, it is the nature that drives the action. I do what I most love to do. I don't like apples. I only like gazelle. You know, it's that, that's the nature. The Bible teaches that man's will is bound and controlled by his sinful nature so that he cannot and will not choose Christ. He will not believe the gospel. He will not forsake sin unless God, in sovereign grace, changes his nature. And this is uh, just, I've quoted, uh, I've, I've printed some scripture on your handout there, John 3, 19 through 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. They love it. We love it. We love darkness rather than light. That's a nature thing. For everyone who does evil hates the light and who does not come to the light for fear that his deeds uh, will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So who gives the light? Who, 
changes the desire to go toward the light. It's wrought in God. It's birthed of God. Uh, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, and I have others there listed for you. So the revealed will of God is the standard by which we live. We're image bearers. We, are, we ought to reflect God's image. God gives the law to say, this is the image to reflect. This is me. Uh, and, and previously we examined human responsibility in relation to divine sovereignty. And we conclude that both are true. God is divinely sovereign over every molecule in the universe. And man is fully responsible for his actions. They're both true. Man is responsible and accountable to God. He has a duty to obey Him and will be punished if he does not. Man is a moral creature with a conscience. I think it's really helpful in this kind of situation when, when you have these objections, it's not fair, you know, all this kind of stuff, is to, is to put it in the light of the cross. Remember when we were going through Acts, uh, when Peter's sermon on the, the day of Pentecost where he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, who planned for Jesus to be crucified? God did. The foreknowledge and defi definite plan. It wasn't a mushy plan. Well, if this happens, then we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do this. It was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned for Jesus to be crucified. Who, who ordained the means by which it was to happen? Who, who created the hands that did it? God did. Um, yet, who is guilty for their actions? How does Peter characterize these guys? You killed Christ by the hands of lawless men. You use lawless men to kill Jesus. Therefore, you're lawless yourself. There's a, 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 an assessment of guilt on those who crucified Jesus, even though it was done by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So both are true. There is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Some, some have take, taken this, and, and, and as they're reading through Scripture, and, and, and they find this um, a difference in natural ability and moral ability. We've hinted to it a little bit already. The natural ability where you, you have the physical ability to obey, but the moral ability where you, have the, you don't have the want to obey. The, they've separated that out. Man is still responsible because, the natural, because he has the natural ability, the constitutional capacity to obey if he wills it. But he has no moral ability and therefore will never exert his will to obey God unless God does something in his heart. All right. Inability does not negate responsibility. God's justice is fair. So, um, so moral obligation are ought to remains even though we've lost the ability to. And that's a desperate state. Um, A.W. Um, Pink uh, gives this, this explanation. The inability to pay a debt does not excuse a debtor who has recklessly squandered his estate, nor does drunkenness excuse the mad or violent actions of a drunkard, but rather aggravates his crime. God has not lost his right to command, even though man, through his wickedness, has lost his power to obey. So the idea is that God lent us the power to obey with Adam and Eve. We squandered it. We spent it on women and wine. And there's no chapter 11 
in the court of heaven. That sounds like a... I need a backbeat. Um, there's no chapter 11 in the court of heaven. He does not excuse us because we cannot pay him back. Even more so, it's not just that we can't pay him back, but we're actually thieves and embezzlers of his good gifts. Um, Lewis Burkhoff adds this, We should not forget that the inability under consideration is self-imposed. Adam chose this for us. It has a moral origin and is not due to any limitation which God has placed on man's being. It's a self-imposed limitation. We did this. It's like a, I don't know, a tie down on a car where you ratchet. It can only go one way. Once we made the choice to fall, once Adam made the choice to sin, you can't go back to neutrality. All right, so objection three. If you love it, set it free. To be real, love must be freely given. To be truly a love offering to God, the human will must be free. Otherwise, we're merely robots under God's coding, under His programming. What's the response to that? Have you heard that objection, by the way? That if you, to be truly love, it needs to be free. Free. Uh, no man has ever had a neutral will, except maybe Adam. But even that's debatable. Uh, Adam was morally good when he was created. So uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Um, since the fall, man has been opposed to God and for sin, uh, and for sin as unfallen Adam was for God um, and against sin. The myth of moral neutrality uh, was exploded by Jesus. Uh, he says in Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. All right. Responsibility involves choice. We don't deny that. Uh, those of the Reformed tradition say that we are created in God's image, and we have the ability to choose. Again, it's just, what do you love? What, what does the will love? The will loves sin and pride and rebellion against God. Um, it's never a neutral choice. That you have a choice, it's never a neutral choice. You, you see in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. There's that ought again. And your offspring, that you and your offspring may live. And a Calvinist is going to say to that, Amen. Choose life. Um, however, Again, we'll point out that a fallen man cannot choose life because he will not choose life. We're sin we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin from nature. He does what he most loves to do. So a, a non-Calvinist will argue that a man comes to a crossroads. Um, for example, Arminian will say that provenient grace brings a human being to this crossroads of, of moral neutrality, of, of, of the neutrality of the will, and where he's able to, to equally choose either life or death. We've, we've never been at a crossroads. Uh, if the will is totally neutral, either before prevenient grace or, or, or after, if the will is totally neutral, why make a choice at all? I mean, if things are perfectly balanced between good and evil in your hand, why make a choice at all? Why would you? 
basic. I took Nathaniel to uh, to to eat donuts this Saturday, and and uh, he is really into physics and science. He's really loving this stuff. And so we were talking about Newton's laws of motion, right? Because that's what 11-year-olds love to talk about. <laughs> For an object to move, there has to be force exerted outside, apart from it, right? Otherwise, it's going to stay there. Uh, for something to stop it, there has to be equal and opposing force to stop it, right? If you're morally neutral, think in terms of spiritual you know, things. Morally neutral, what's going to cause you to choose good or evil? There's, nothing, there's no force exerted on the will one way or the other. But we've never been that way. Man, men always, men and women, always make choices. We're, we're built that way. We're built to choose things. We, um, the other, another question I, I like to ask in these kind of conversations is, is God morally neutral? I mean, if that's the perfect state, morally neutral between good and evil, is God morally neutral? Everything he does is good, right? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Everything he does is good. Are we more free than God in a fallen state? What is freedom? I, I think the presupp presupposition of what is what constitutes freedom is skewed, which again goes to the total depravity of our minds. All right. It's, it's about 10, and I, and I want to get to one more thing here. And it's not on your sheet. Um, I think many times, this is just me, I think many times that um, in our debates over these things, we may uh, misalign or malign. How did it, malign, misalign? I don't know. We may malign some people that we really shouldn't. And, and, I'm, and I'm talking about uh, like a classical Arminian. A classical Arminian, uh, Jacob Arminius, uh, John Wesley, um, and, and Roger Olson, for example, the current guy, they will all affirm total depravity. The will is totally in bondage to sin. They'll, they'll all say it. Um, we need, to, we need to recognize that they, that they do that and not just throw them under the, the, the semi-Pelagian bus. That's not, that's not fair. That's not right. Uh, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that a modern Southern Baptist will. You know, uh, I've, I've talked to some recently that I, I wondered about their, whether they were in the, in the faith on orthodoxy on this issue, but that's another issue entirely. True Arminians affirm that Adam's guilt and depravity have been transmitted to all mankind. Classical Arminians believe that fallen humanity is unable to choose good over evil. They affirm that without the intentional and active grace of God, the human heart will be left in its doomed state in willful disobedience to Christ. Arminius himself said, No man believes in Christ except him who has been previously disposed and prepared by preventing or preceding grace. Now there's that term prevenient grace idea there. Um, articles 3 and 4 of the Remonstrates. Uh, I'll, I'll just read one of them. That, that man has not saving grace of himself nor of the working of his own free will 
Inasmuch as in his state of apostasy and sin, he can for himself and by himself think nothing that is good, nothing that is truly good, such as saving faith above all else. But that it is necessary that by God in Christ, through his Holy Spirit, he be born again and renewed in understanding, affections and will, and in all his faculties, that he may be able to understand, think, will, and perform what is truly good according to the word of God. A classical Arminian affirms total depravity. And so, guys that are arguing that, you know, Arminians are heretics, I, I think that's a big disservice. Um, one Calvinist, um, well, I'll say one, several Calvinist um, theologians have said that classical Arminianism is more semi-Augustinian than semi-Pelagian. <laughs> They're closer to us than I think a lot of times we give them credit for. Um, the issue with, um, with Arminius is not with a bondage of the will. He completely affirmed the bondage of the will. The issue with Arminius was, is grace resistible? Being brought to the point of neutrality through prevenient grace can man resist it, or does God always get his way? Is there no shred of freedom and choice um, at that point of, of, of a gracious intervention by God? Grace is necessary, but is it resistible? That's the issue with a, um, with a classical Arminian. And that's where we'll go next time, irresistible grace. Yeah? Do they define total depravity differently than we do? Because it seems that that it's a logical progression from total depravity all the way through the, the tulip. Yeah. And if, there, if, if one is, is truly totally depraved, right. that without ability to choose anything, yeah. then how can you... Ha I mean, well, let me just read you John Wesley. Let me just, here, here's John Wesley's deal. Neither is salvation of the works we do when we believe. For it is then God that worketh, they all had lists, worketh in us, and therefore, that he giveth us a reward for what he himself worketh, only commendeth the riches of his mercy, but leaveth us nothing whereof to glory. God works, we don't work. Right? The will, uh, Arminius um, uh, argued that, um, that the, the will is in bondage and totally corrupted by sin. The issue, the way they get out of it is this idea of prevenient grace. And we were talking last night. Prevenient grace is actually a term Augustine used to talk about the restraining hand of God on sinner. Remember Pharaoh and Abraham. God prevented Pharaoh from, from having any kind of relational thing with, with Sarah to preserve Adam, uh, Abraham and Sarah. That was a prevenient grace in Augustine's terminology of God to prevent Pharaoh from sinning as he would normally do. What a classical Arminian does is takes that idea and says, see, God works and brings, takes, he wipes the inability away through prevenient grace and brings him to a state of neutrality. And he does that for everybody. Some say everybody, some would say more than you think. <laughs> when, when, because Christ died for everyone under their thing 2,000 right. years ago. Right. How then, if 2,000 years ago this happened, are people born totally depraved today? 
do that are they born totally depraved yeah. and then it, at, some, at some point at some point usually at the age of accountability, accountability yeah they move because God's God's work on the cross, which is anywhere from six to twelve for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> brings them at that point up to neutrality, yeah. and then they have the ability yeah. from that yeah. point to choose. Yeah, at some point, at some point in the life of a human being, they are brought to that point of being um, uh, influenced by provenient grace, and it is an and it is an effective grace to the extent that it brings them to a clear headed. They're out of the fog. They can choose all things being equal, good or evil. That's, and I think that's a fair statement. Um, is it resistible? That's really the core. That was the core with Arminius. Is it resistible? And so next week, I thought it would be good to talk about this in terms of this is the state. What's the experiential first? And I think the irresistible grace is the experiential thing on our end. And then go into election and and uh, definite atonement. Yeah. So would that prevenient grace be resistible then? Yes. <laughs> Which is neutrality. Yeah. Sense. Well, the, 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 the persuasion of prevenient, the wooing right. of prevenient grace says, come to me, obey me. But God's not going to overcome. He's not going to be, he's a gentleman. I think of the, the, the great Armenian hymn, you know. The, what, what is the prevenient, prevenient grace? Prevenient grace is a removal of, in, in, Arminian terms, is a removal of the inability to obey. It's a removal of that total depravity that man is born into. Before you become, Before you become a Christian, it is by the Holy Spirit. Just the Holy Spirit doing... What's that? Just general, general grace that God gives to every man to bring them to the point of so the main difference or, choosing. Or a difference mm -hmm. between the Reformed theology and Arminian is that we do believe, I do believe, that there is an inability, that that inability is removed when you become a new creation in right, Christ. Right, right. That you do have a choice to choose holiness and to actually act in holiness. Right. It's, but the Arminians believe that that inability is removed before you become Christ. Right. Christ. Faith precedes regeneration. I sort of think of it I sort of think of it in bubbles. Like you're in a bubble of sin. Okay. Non-believer. Sound effects and included. Someday in heaven you'll be in a bubble of holiness and right now it's a Venn diagram. Okay. Where when you're an unbeliever all you can choose is sin. Right. When you're a believer you can choose holiness but we often are overlapped. Our overlap is a little bigger on one side than the other. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right way to think of it, but that's the way I think of it. I think that and someday our bubble will be separated. Someday our bubble will pop and we'll be totally good. Um, yeah, I, I think I think that's a visual for what Augustine was talking about. You know, <laughs> the benefits of homeschooling. Um, so so yeah, I think that's a, a visual of what Augustine was talking about. But the with the Armenian idea, they're they're thinking that. There's no overlap of the of the, well the overlap of the bubble happens before the heart is made new. Uh, where you can choose either. Right. Yeah. Right. Before you before you uh, And then well, if you're Southern Baptist, once you choose Christ once, then the bubble just comes over here, and you're constantly you you can never get out of the bubble. Well, and then there are those that are like. I, 
may be wrong, but I think Methodists do believe that that bubble can be separated in this life. Yeah. And that you actually could... Could lose your salvation. Yeah, some, some do. a perfect life if you... Some, some argue for perfectionism. Some argue that you can lose your salvation altogether. And some just are... Um, what do they, they call them? A, a, a whiskey Calvinist? Where they only believe the one-fifth uh, perseverance, preservation. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we'll go next time. Lord will and the crick don't rise to, um, to uh, well, that's true, to, to irresistible grace. Any other questions? Any other comments? We're, we only have, like, you know, Ten more minutes. That's okay, we got the pastor. That's true. We got him hostage. So. Yes, I was in the See. Now we gotta go. What'd you the say? The creek is rising. Uh, could it be a lot of this misunderstanding is because people look at it from like a human perspective? Mm. Like, uh, I don't know if. You, you went up and held a gun to someone's head and it's like, you're going to love me. Yeah. Obviously, that would be absurd. Right. But God works on a completely different level yeah. than we do. Yeah. Right. The, the assumption there is that they don't want to love him. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because God is able to exist in himself. So, like, he, does, he, like, he doesn't... Like, he wrote the rules. Mm. So he created Well, us. he is the rules. Yeah, I mean, like, he, he is. Yeah. That's the statement. But, um, so we don't get to question whether or not it's fair or, I mean, we have an idea of what's legal and just and everything, but, like, God doesn't, he, he doesn't operate on that. In, in fairness, though, our, we're created in his image. Right. So our sense of fairness comes from, comes him. from him. So that's the only, that's the only reason we have any idea of that, but mm -hmm. it's not perfect. Right. So if we do, we might question it. Yeah. And, and back to Paul's answer. Exactly. That analogy is broken because it's not God pointing a gun. It's God off. It's God handing a prince's crown and placing it on our head. That's the difference. Okay, I'm, you lost me at prince's crown. I, <laughs> I don't want to. Princes. I don't know. Princes. Princes. Okay. <laughs> There's a language barrier. Yeah, there is. Crown. Crown. A crown. I didn't mean to say prince's crown because. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Well, <laughs> speaking English, people. It's very, very difficult to gather that. that I now have a visual. It's the Oxford apostrophe. Uh, apostasy. It's apostrophe. All right. Any other questions that are germane to our discussion other than punctuation? All right, let's pray. God, we do thank you that in your great mercy you looked down on our helpless estate and you showed grace in sending your Son and displaying to us how great our need for Him is in your word that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned away. There is none who seeks after God. And but for your great kindness to us, we would continue doing what we most love to do, which is rebel against you. And so thank you for, again, highlighting the good news as we look at the bad. I pray that you would um, do more than have us equipped 
for uh, debate talking points, but that our hearts would be warmed to the beauties of Jesus, that we would see our desperate need of Him and run to the cross again and again and again, thankful for what you've done for us in Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you. You're very good.